Today I'm going to talk to you about um, our tradition, this Theravadan tradition called often the uh, Insight Meditation Community, and developing beautiful qualities of the heart. So on this particular retreat, the beautiful qualities that we're developing are mostly the qualities of loving-kindness. And then the afternoon, we're um, offering other beautiful qualities of heart, compassion, empathetic joy, forgiveness, gratitude, other beautiful qualities that are the close siblings of loving-kindness. And there are other beautiful qualities in our tradition. So I'm going to talk about a few other qualities that support us on our path and what it's like to develop them. The particular qualities I want to point to tonight are patience, courage, faith, and the further letting go or renunciation. So that's many qualities, it's four more. But the tone of it really is um, giving ourselves more fully over to the practice here and um, devoting ourselves more to the practices we're doing here, that these conditions are very ripe for what we're cultivating. The effort you've put in um, will bear fruit. And so you're in really good conditions to be cultivating these beautiful, beautiful qualities of heart. And so these other qualities I might talk about tonight are really just to um, support us in this endeavor of developing loving kindness even further. The Buddha lived at a time in India that was actually quite psychologically developed. They had a language for internal states of heart and mind, of processes of how people got caught and how people got free. So much so that people could practice and get advice and further practice and find themselves further and further free of their own internal doubts and fears and could develop beautiful, beautiful qualities of heart and mind. And it's believed that these practices of the four Brahma-viharas, of which loving-kindness is one, that these practices were something the Buddha practiced before his awakening and saw its usefulness and then brought it into his teaching. So that this is not necessarily a specific Buddhist practice, but we do it within a Buddhist context here at Spirit Rock. But how to actually train so that you can find the boundless qualities of love. Um, he was not the only school in India that had figured this out. That's sort of the belief at the time. Often he would uh, take things that worked that he trained in before his enlightenment and sort of take them in because they were useful. He would take things in, develop them some so they better fit what he was trying to train his students to understand and realize. And then he brought in some very beautiful key aspects um, that were part of his own uh, teaching. But part of this tradition really is developing beautiful qualities of heart and mind. And so that's where these practices come in, the loving kindness of practices, the Brahma-viharas, is where we take time to develop um, strengths inside and learn to let go of old habits that don't serve us and learn to strengthen ourselves. We have new capacities to, feed, to meet the challenges of life. 
So as love becomes stronger, it's more available. It's more what we turn to. It's more what we use in easy times, but also in difficult times. We find that it's more reliable when we develop it and make it strong. This particular practice of saying the phrases over and over, pointing your heart in the direction of loving kindness, and then watching yourself go through ups and downs in terms of energy, as energy comes and goes, um, as confidence comes and goes, as impatience comes and goes, all through the day, you're a moving target. All these different uh, things are passing through you. And you learn, no matter where you are, to aim towards kindness. No matter what's happening in you, your kindness becomes less and less conditioned. There are more and more conditions where you actually aim towards kindness. So can you aim towards kindness when you're sleepy? Can you aim towards kindness when you're patient? Can you aim towards kindness when you're irritated? Can you aim towards kindness? No matter what's happening, you learn to, to like a compass that gets stronger and pointing north, no matter how much you shake it, the needle always points north. As you go through the many ups and downs of life, and many ups and downs on retreat, each place you find yourself, can you point towards kindness? And the way that we do that is to very patiently devote ourselves to repeating these phrases, repeating the phrases, the wishes of loving kindness towards a particular being, so we're clear that we're connecting to a particular being or a group of beings or maybe all beings at one point. But you can clearly draw uh, good intentions for yourself and others, no matter what's happening. And sometimes that will be easy because your heart will be very close to that state. But we don't stay there. Things change. So as they change, can you also point your heart in the direction of kindness, especially when challenges come, like Larry talked about yesterday? And that's what you do. That's the courageous effort needed to keep pointing towards kindness no matter what happens. Dalai Lama has a simple quote that says, uh, be kind when possible. And his second sentence is, and it's always possible. (laughs) That may or may not seem true to you. That may seem like, I don't know if that's true for me. I don't know if I could always point towards kindness. But more and more you can. And what you realize over time is that if you keep practicing there are fewer and fewer circumstances where you're disoriented, where you wouldn't point towards kindness, where kindness wouldn't be part of what was happening for you, looking for kindness. What's the kind response in this circumstance? To develop this type of practice, you need uh, this factor, the Pali word is kanti, and its easiest translation is patience, but it also can be translated as endurance. So because we have to generate the phrases and keep pointing our heart over and over and over, no matter what's happening in the direction of kindness, it takes a type of patience. It takes a type of endurance to keep make that steady. When I first started doing the loving kindness practice, I was surprised at the amount of effort it did take. Someone asked the question earlier about mindfulness practice, where you're resting more in the flow of experiences. And then this loving kindness practice where it feels like you're turning uh, the crank on an old car over and over and over trying to get the motor going. Then once it goes, you can't stop cranking. You actually kind of keep cranking. And it was a lot like, um, for me, I, when I realized it was a lot like long distance bicycling in uh, 
high school, I got into bicycling and we'd go on these long trips with my friends and we'd bike in, you know, as, as far as we could on a day and the next day as far as we could. And just needed a new type of stamina, a new type of patience to be biking all day long. You weren't biking to a friend's house. You weren't biking for an hour or two. You're biking for the, the entire day with little breaks. And so a new type of stamina was needed. That's sort of like what it's like when you wake up in the morning. You wake up in the morning and just as you start to realize, oh yeah, I'm here on retreat. Right, may I be safe. <laughs> may I be happy. May I be healthy. Oh, really, a whole day. Okay, okay, may I live at ease. Getting out of bed, putting on the sock. May I be safe. May I be happy. May I be... Oh, like, Really, all day long I'm going to do this? Yes, this is what you're going to do all day long. Just start pedaling. After a while, when you realize, when's it going to kick in? Are there different instructions? Or Like, really, this is what they, they, they're really expecting me to keep. Yeah, the moment you wake up to the moment you fall asleep. And as Sylvia said, even when you get up to, take, to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, got to take a piss. Oh yeah, may I be safe? <laughs> wow. <clears throat> but after a while, you realize that's really what's called for. That's really what the practice is. And so you find your, your, uh, your long distance running pace. You know, you can't pedal fast and then coast for a while and get discouraged and then pedal fast. You might try that, but it's really just like, okay, how do I pace myself with these phrases? Can I do it all day long? And luckily, because you're on a long enough retreat, you will pick up momentum. And it will become more the default setting, at least uh, saying the phrases, let alone intending them and really being clear about it. But after a while, it's like, yep, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing for day in and day out. And as, mo as that momentum builds, you then get to actually explore the phrases, not just remember them and say them, but like, ah, safety. What is safety? What would that mean? What am I actually wishing here around safety? Happiness, health and strength, living at ease. And so the very phrases then begin to kind of grow as you get more familiar with them. They might, as you reflect upon them, you might find that they actually carry a lot. Within that simple phrase is a beautiful wish, the feeling of safety. I think of how many people in the world don't know the feeling of safety and what it means to actually have a sense of safety. And you're lucky if you actually are safe, but there are people who have strong enough hearts that even when they're not actually all that safe, they still feel safe because they're oriented. So that's a very powerful heart when you're not actually in, sa in safe circumstances, but you can feel safe because you're present, you have perspective. It becomes very powerful to do that, to feel safe. So it's no small wish, it's a small phrase, but it's no small wish to wish that feeling of safety. And then letting your nervous system relax, the vigilance relax, getting a deeper breath because you're not feeling unsafe. So it's a beautiful wish, as is happiness and peace, strength and health. So you're, you're all becoming uh, long distance runners, long distance bicyclers, you're becoming long distance phrase repeaters <laughs> to get into the rhythm of these phrases. 
And the beautiful thing about it is that they do become like a song that gets stuck in your head or a song that you default to. Because I've done this practice and I did it intensively a long time ago, now when I'm walking in downtown San Francisco sometimes, I'll find myself thinking a little bit about my errands, but then what's that other noise? Oh, may I be safe, may I be happy, may I be live at ease in the world. Like, oh, that is kind of like a default setting. It's lovely. And then it's more within reach when you need it. The funny thing about the, um, the, the chain reaction, so Sylvia had an experience on a plane where she started saying the phrases, or she had a practice before that, so she could find the phrases in a turbulent time in a plane. She told Sharon Salzberg. Sharon Salzberg told an audience of people, which I happened to be in, about Sylvia's story. I was in a plane that was bumpy, and I started, I, I don't know we're going to make it. What do I want to do? How would I want to go down? May we all be safe. Then I actually found those phrases, fed by the story, fed by my own practice. This is what I want to do when I'm challenged. I don't want to panic. I actually want to care about the people on the plane and recognize, well, I took it for granted we'd make it. And how sad if that person didn't make it. I bet there's someone who's really going to miss them. And this person over here, the whole plane is full of people who'd be missed. I was just sort of treating it like, a, you know, I have to get somewhere, so I'm on a plane. No, we're actually taking a very incredible journey together. Not guaranteed we'll make it. And how great when we do make it. And so the loving kindness practice takes a, uh, a plane ride and makes it a beautiful journey with kindred people who might otherwise just be kind of part of the backdrop if you were distracted. So that's some of the outcome of this patience this endurance. And it's a, it takes some endurance because this practice can be more effortful. It takes time to really generate the phrases, generate the kindness. And if you get distracted, it might send, tend to uh, dissipate some. But you're in the right conditions to really grow a lot of momentum. And then you do find it in difficult times. So, I also was in an airport at one point. <laughs> you might get the picture that Dharma teachers have no other stories, no other challenges than making it through airports. But <clears throat> I, I crammed two things way too close together, and I only did it because a friend of mine promised me he could drive me from the ending of one retreat to catch a flight to a training I was doing, um, leaving out of Detroit and had to get to Denver. And he got there, we got there just on time, but I went to the kiosk to get my, my ticket, uh, the thing, and it just wasn't reading my card right. And it took several minutes, and I realized, I'm just going to go to the counter. I went to the counter, and they said, oh, I'm sorry, you're three minutes too late. Your, your seat was given away. And I said, no, no, I'm, I'm actually here. See, I'm, I'm actually here. And what hurt the most is she didn't care. Like, that, that's sort of like, I knew many people had, had caused her to kind of be shut down, because I was definitely ramping up in my anxiety about not making the plane. I was like, oh, this is so frustrating. The plane is here. I can totally make it, but they won't let me on. And then I said, how do I solve this? I really do have to get to that training in Denver. What do I do? And they said I could catch a flight the next morning, but that would, I would miss the whole first day of the training. And they said, okay, there's this, there's this flight you can ke- catch. Um, to Chicago and then catch another flight from Chicago to Denver and you might get there on time. So I get on that plane, takes off, and um, 
the weather is so bad that you do almost go down. And I was, well, wouldn't that be ironic? Like I fought my way into this plane, it's the one that crashed. And they turned around and went back to the Detroit airport. I was like, oh my God, I can't get <laughs> I was almost in the Chicago, and we almost landed, but we had, couldn't land because it was just too chaotic. And so we went back and I was like, there's, there's heavy karma for me to be here. I cannot get out of this airport. So then I had to sleep there overnight. And I was, I was tired, I was frustrated. I was like, why, why, why? Three minutes, if, it only, if only this had happened, if that happened, oh, why, why, why? And it's like, okay, I'm just suffering. And they had a little meditation uh, place there. No one was using it, so I laid down there to get you know, a couple hours of sleep because by the time the plane got back and my next plane, I didn't have long. I slept for an hour, and when I woke up, I would really let go. I was like, okay, this is what's happening. I really let go. And I woke up, and then I saw something very few people see. And that's what it's like to be in the Detroit airport at 2 a.m. in the morning. And there are people that come out, and they buff the floor, and they polish the chrome of the, of the planters, um, they stock all the restaurants. And being slightly sleep-deprived, and in kind of a liminal state of transition, I looked around, I was like, wow, they're really present. And this was a place where I was rushing through and other people were rushing through. And look how carefully they're taking care of things, how carefully they're polishing the chrome. And, and then I looked around, it's like, this is actually a beautiful building. It's an older airport, so it's not actually that striking. But when you're a little bit sleep deprived and you see people polishing the whole area, it's like, yeah, this is actually an amazing structure and they're really taking care of it. And then in the morning, all these people started rushing through. And I was like, stop, don't rush. Don't you know how carefully that person buffed the floor? And you were there, just like tying your shoe on that chrome. Somebody hand polished that. Like this is actually a sacred place. This beautiful Detroit airport is a sacred place. I only really could get there to that place of seeing the Detroit airport as a sacred destination, a sacred uh, cathedral that I spent the night in because I could get over myself at some point get over my attachments, and then begin opening my heart. It was so much better to be in the Detroit airport, seeing it as a beautiful place, rather than being locked into my plans, locked into my uh, necessities, my responsibilities. So life will throw you these challenges, and how do you want to respond to them? We'll get tripped up because often we don't expect it, but then how do you recover? How do you recover your sense of humanity? How do you recover the patience? Not just taking the suffering down to zero, that's already lovely, but then flipping a suffering situation into a beautiful situation. You can do that. And that's actually what this practice will give, not only how to reduce suffering, but how to find love and kindness in challenging circumstances or in places you don't even expect it to arise, like at 2 a.m. in the Detroit airport. Then this quality to endure can become even stronger and it backs up this, this uh, capacity to love. Dr. Martin Luther King um, has a beautiful quote when he was sort of summing up the movement of uh, the civil rights movement he was a part of. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Here's another quote. We shall match your capacity to inflict suffering 
by our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we will still love you. That great capacity within that movement, the great belief in the power of love, that that was what was fueling them and what was sustaining them while they took uh, many centuries, but definitely many decades of that struggle to begin to wake people up to uh, the abuses of the, um, the racism that they were trying to confront at that time. Motivated by love and still had this endurance and this courage backing up the love and finding it in difficult times. There are many people, many people who have found remarkable love remarkable capacities to love. And they're often the people we think of when we think of Nobel Peace Prize winners, their capacity to be courageous with their love. But they were all born ordinary people and something happened along the way of their journey and they found themselves in circumstances where they could either collapse or they could find a strength inside and find that courage to be more loving than is ordinary. And then that love becomes an actual force. It's actually what you're all doing. You may not imagine it, that simple phrases done over time, sometimes feeling a little dull, but keeping at it. You're actually doing something incredibly powerful. And I, and I promise you that it's powerful because this is what I did. And it's been powerful in my life. Michelle, my, my teacher, Michelle McDonald, used to say, if I can do it, you can do it. And she was so loving, I couldn't imagine how she used to be because I only knew her when she was so loving. But I'll tell you, there was a point in my life once, <clears throat> I was living with a friend and he had some friends over and they all woke up before I did and they were laughing in the kitchen early in the morning and I was paralyzed. I couldn't walk out my bedroom because it walked right into the kitchen. And I remember being in there, in my bedroom, in my house, but I didn't feel confident enough to walk out into my own kitchen among friends, people who had shown me only kindness. I was too insecure and kept kind of like trying to summon up some courage to walk out of my own bedroom into my own kitchen. There was so much insecurity about who I was that I was actually trapped in my room and they were just hanging out for hours in the kitchen. And I remember wanting to get out of my room and I couldn't. I started way far back in my own ability to feel confidence and self-love. And what turned it around were these practices, steadily saying these phrases. I had no idea how powerful it was at the time. What you're doing is planting redwood trees and measuring them day by day to see if they're showing you their 300 foot status. <laughs> but you're planting something very powerful, phrase by phrase, done in these conditions. It's incredibly powerful with so much momentum. Every time you reach for the phrase, every time you try one more time, you're planting very, very powerful seeds. And the seeds have the power, the DNA is in the seed. It's not all by your effort. You put in your time, but these phrases, the power of your own heart, 
the capacity in your heart that you're hooking into, that you're allowing to grow, is actually boundless. You all don't have an upper limit of how much love you can actually cultivate. I have a garden at home and I'm growing uh, tomatoes. I realize it's really about the only thing I like out of a garden. I like gardening in general. But I can almost buy everything I like right when I need it. Um, So I buy a few things, but what I really love is eating tomatoes that are hot from the sun. Like I like that, and you can't actually buy that. They're not hot in the sun. In the, in the grocery store. It's about the only thing I like hot out of the garden is a tomato. And I like cherry tomatoes because you just eat them right there. So I bought these tomatoes last year, cherry tomatoes, grew in my garden, and they exploded. I had a hedge of cherry tomatoes, and I hardly ate any of them. And a lot of the tomatoes, unbeknownst to me, the, so many of them were there, they fell into the ground and then I mixed that soil with other soil, didn't think much about it. And now, this year, all over my garden is exploding <laughs> cherry tomatoes. I, have, uh, I had too many last year, and I probably have uh, 10 times as many. And I'm, I, by, by the time I go home, I, I really took a machete, and I was just like cutting back, trying to recover the paths in my garden because the hedge of cherry tomatoes was growing over. So, <clears throat> how true is it to say that I grow cherry tomatoes? I put in a little bit of effort, but they are powerful. The DNA of those seeds are powerful, and I'm watering them and taking care of them, and that's why they're so prolific, but they have a power inside them. These phrases have power in them. The orientation of the heart, the heart itself has power in it. And what you're doing is creating the conditions that germinate the heart. When the heart begins to germinate, it begins to grow. I never would have guessed that my heart had that type of DNA. I never would have guessed it. But it did. I'm, I'm shocked at what this heart does today compared to where it was uh, when I began this practice. Not only is it so strong, but <clears throat> I'm not even watering a lot of these cherry tomatoes and they just won't go down. <laughs> like they're still coming up like, God, no water. I, I, I'm trying to save, I'm just putting the water in certain places, but like they are, they're going for it. They are just, they want to express themselves. <laughs> Each one of your hearts has that. It wants its liberation. Your heart wants its greatness. And so your little part is patience. And it's not little in effort, but you just do your small part and you can't measure the outcome by what you think is you're doing, but by watering it, giving it attention in these conditions on a retreat you are awakening something that's incredibly powerful and it has a power unto itself. So I want you to have faith in that. That's another factor that's supportive, especially with this practice, is having faith. Having faith and confidence in this tradition in what the Buddha taught in the many generations that carried it forward and taught it to other generations and now what we're teaching you here and that we've all felt. It's changed all of our lives, these practices. Not slightly, greatly. And so it's working here, and you're all in the right circumstances for these things to be impactful. Before I began my first retreat, I was in college 
And I was getting a bit disillusioned with um, academic study. Some people were gifted at it, I could do it, but it kind of hurt my brain a lot to be that hyper-focused in such an intellectual endeavor. And one of the things that happened was some friends of mine invited me to this incredible 10-day protest in the Nevada nuclear test site and the deserts of Nevada. And that one event uh, completely changed my life. I met very dedicated peace activists who'd been dedicated their entire lives. We were camped out in the desert. Um, It was beautiful under the moonlight at night and it was pretty hot during the day. But we're at the main gate where all the trucks come and go and the workers come and go to do the nuclear tests. At the time, they were still doing a lot of underground tests. And I met beautiful, courageous old Shoshone elders who were trying to stop the testing because it was their land. To, to the conquering uh, Europeans, the desert was a forgotten place to them, but to the Shoshone, it was priceless, beautiful Mother Earth. And so for them, they were heartbroken to see the nuclear testing going on there. So they had their own way of doing vigil and saying prayer and uh, getting arrested with us. And we came and I learned so much from them. It was so beautiful. And they taught me things that at that time I didn't know how to understand. So they planted redwoods in my heart that that have taken a long time to grow to understand the vision, the relationship to the earth, their commitment to peace, their ways, and seeing how beautiful that was and was foreign to me at the time, but still left an impression to see the Shoshone elders and uh, the way they can they conducted themselves and, the, and their beautiful devotion, devotion to peace and to the land. But there were two other people um, there, many, I mean, I actually can picture it now, there's a rippling of people who impressed me there. I'd never seen it. I'd never seen people that dedicated throwing themselves, physically throwing themselves in the way of this nuclear testing, risking all to stop such a violent act. But two people that that touched me at the time and changed my life because they touched me so deeply was actually these two elder Quaker women. And I I never got to meet them I was a little too shy to actually go up and tell them, but I watched them. I was mesmerized by them. They had a glow in their eyes. They had love coming out of them. I had just never seen that much heart constantly glowing, the laughter and the joy in their being. I remember at the time thinking, I want that. I, I want to be that. Not for myself. I actually want to serve the planet like that, but this heart's so insecure, this heart is so patterned and it's like, oh, I just don't think I'll ever be that. But my compass got set when I saw them and I would see them getting arrested and they would walk up and <clears throat> this one sheriff would see them and he'd come running towards them and it was like, I wanna do it, I wanna do it. <laughs> and they're like, oh, Frank, yeah, we were hoping you'd be here today. <laughs> oh, how lovely, how are you? And they would walk across the grate and he would take them hand in hand and they would talk and I was just like catching up and he'd put the little handcuffs on them and then they would get in the van and they're just talking the whole time. And I saw them later on after they'd been released and no charges were pressed. 
And they'd be sitting around a campfire at night and they'd be talking to each other or singing songs and they camped near us. And so it's like, I just have never seen people that courageous and that gentle and that loving with that much conviction. Um, and it touched me. It's like, who else is that happy? Who else is that courageous? But then I was left with this doubt. I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to transform my heart. I don't know what the mechanism is. I know what I want, but I don't know what the mechanism is. And then by some strange fluke, I was on a silent meditation retreat, just experimenting at that time in my life. And I realized this was the actual path. These are the actual teachings. There's actually a path to waking your heart up. There's actually a path to healing your heart. There's a path to growing its potential, to letting its potential be nourished so that it grows beyond the efforts you put in. It starts to take on a life of its own, this great capacity of heart. The steady, steady patience to be turning to these phrases and finding the pace, the gentle but convicted steady pace of relating to these phrases. And then that opens us up to deeper renunciation. So renunciation might be at first like, I know what I like, but I'm not supposed to, so I'll renounce it. There are things back home I really yearn for, but I'm not supposed to have them, I'll be good. So that's sort of first renunciation. You do it because it's good for you, like taking antibiotics, they taste bad, but they're good for you. Okay, I'll renounce these things. But when you actually <clears throat> catch the beauty of the heart, the renunciation starts to actually become easier because what are you giving up other than the things that are not made of love? You know, the, thing, the ways that your mind is drawn back home, letting go of those things, and more and more when you compare what it's like to be in a beautiful heart compared to what your mind what the habits of how you take care of yourself ordinarily. It's like, oh, I, I'm gonna let go of those things further and see if I can actually rest in these phrases. Whether I'm tired, whether I'm energetic, I'm gonna devote myself more and more to this. So what you're renouncing is the things that are not the practice of loving kindness, at least while you're here on retreat. And that's how this practice continues to deepen. You could just do the momentum part, the effort part. But when you actually begin to further let go and give yourself more fully over to the practice, then you actually are, are giving extra nourishment to the development of loving kindness. And that takes, again, faith. This other quality that I mentioned earlier, the faith to be courageous, to let go even further of what your mind is used to and where your mind might trail off to because it's an old habit of comfort or worry. And surrender that, at least while you're on retreat. Surrender it fully. All the things that are not here, let them go. They actually all come back quickly enough. They all raise their hand and say, please choose me again. But when you go forward with a heart full of loving kindness, then you can choose the things that really are rooted in love and wisdom which actually a lot of your life is. So you get all your life back, you choose a lot of it again, but the things that don't serve you, you don't have to choose them again. 
So I invite you to be more fully courageous to do simple phrases, releasing complications, releasing the mind that wants to know, that wants to, why are we doing this? Is it going to work out? Relax, have faith, say these phrases, feel the intention behind the phrases, give your heart more fully over to them, walk out a little further into the practice. Find a connection to kindness when you're sleepy. Find a connection to kindness. Imagine if your first thoughts upon waking up were, may I be safe? You can actually invite yourself into that orientation so that your first thoughts are not, where's my cell phone? <laughs> huh? <laughs> gotcha. But may this, day, may this day be one of purpose. May this day be one of joy. May this day be one where I'm embodied those can be really early on default settings. And you actually get there by practicing. So as your, as your mind is relaxing and letting go into sleep, let it relax from a practice of loving kindness. Not the working loving kindness, you give yourself a chance to rest, but loving phrases, loving phrases, and boop, you're out. And when you first wake up, what day is it, where am I? Oh yeah, may I be safe, right. You pick it up again. You're really lucky to be on a long retreat like this and have a chance to be nourishing a connection to these practices like this for building that momentum. The practice will go up and down. It will go up and down. The practice always goes up and down. After a while, you have a sense of faith. It can go up. Oh yeah, it's going down, it's going up, it's going down. I know, practice is like that. But with some faith, with some patience, with some courage, just keep steadily pedaling the bicycle, steadily pedaling these phrases, saying them, saying them with intention, letting that grow, and having faith that you're actually planting very powerful seeds in your heart. Or the seeds are already in your heart, really what you're doing is watering them. You know, we're in a drought and some seeds just stay dormant because it's too dry, and they're just waiting for the right conditions. And we come to these conditions, spirit rock, sitting, walking, solitude, saying these phrases. That's like sprinkling water on dry soil where the seeds have been waiting for the right opportunity. And this is such the right opportunity for metta to begin growing. And then you'll see your heart is made of redwood seeds, really powerful, tall, they know what to do. These little tiny redwood seeds know how to become 300 feet tall. They actually, they, they've worked it all out. <laughs> Same with the seeds in your heart. One time we, the times that we need, um, especially some wisdom and some faith, is when <clears throat> we go through diff really difficult times, and sometimes that happens on life, and life, life throws you challenges or they're just difficult sides of life. And maybe your first time going through that difficult experience. But you're also going to experience something we call purification. And this is really a time that you will need endurance and you will need faith and courage. When the heart lets go of a really old pattern, it goes from being dormant 
to being suddenly more active than you like. And it's working its way out of your system. And we call it purification. But your practice may suddenly hit a much rougher patch of psychological or emotional or energetic material. And if you don't know it, it will feel like suddenly things are going in the wrong direction. But if you talk to any of us, you'll say, oh, it's going the right direction, but you're going through what we'd call purification. And it really is something that's been locked in your system for a while, working its way out. And when it works its way out, you feel the, the beauty left over. The Buddha described this in a sutta he called, uh, it's really the, the gold purification sutta, but it now has this name, the dirt washer. <laughs> so whoever translated that is more interested in the washing of the dirt than the finding of the gold. But at the time of the Buddha, uh, as in every culture, um, gold was valued for its malleability and its beautiful color. And besides finding gold nuggets, um, which you can do, you can find <clears throat> places in the earth where there's a lot of gold mixed into the earth. And so the Buddha used this as an analogy for what happens to our hearts as we practice. And it definitely happens in loving-kindness practice. It's known for being a purification practice. So besides the ups and downs of feeling a little more tired than energetic, a little restless, more peaceful, but finding yourself suddenly with a lot more uh, grief or tears or irritation coming up, that's, you know you're in the territory of purification, or you're likely in the territory of purification. So the Buddha describes what happens when they try to mine gold. You take the earth that you know that has gold in it, and you begin washing it with water. And because gold is dense, as you agitate the dirt, the gold parts go down and the dirt parts come up. So you take something that has a lot of gold in it, and as you agitate it, the gold begins to disappear, but it's dropping deeper into the container. And what's floating up to the top is the lighter bits that are not gold. You scope those off and you look down, oh, there's a lot more gold there. You keep washing it, washing it, the dirt comes up, the gold goes down, scrape off the top, more beautiful gold underneath. And he describes this many times, many processes, getting finer and finer, beyond to slide off to things that are not gold. You'll notice this, you're practicing the things that are not love. You notice them and you let them go. Resentments, one by one. They don't serve you, you let them go. You don't have to force them to go. Sometimes the heart is just ready to let them go. I don't need this resentment anymore. I don't need this old story. Practicing loving kindness, an old dark story comes up. You let it go, you move on past it. And the heart is pure because of it. You wash it, you wash it, and wash it, but at some point you actually have to heat the gold up. And he describes heating the gold up. And that's what has even more of the embedded impurities with the gold separate from the gold. Gold is denser, it goes down, deeper into the heart. What comes up are the impurities and they get washed off and then you have pure gold underneath. So that will happen in loving kindness practice, not to everybody but to some people it will happen, purification process, where what's flushing out of your heart doesn't feel like loving kindness. You feel like, I'm actually not very good at this because the more I practice, I'm actually going through a lot of hate right now. I keep trying to say the phrases, but every time I practice, a lot of hate is coming up. That's purification. You're flushing the hate out of your system. Just to give you a little landmark on that, a little heads up, if you're finding that happening, it's known, it's common, 
I'll tell you my purification story just to really nail the, the story home. <laughs> and I'll help myself in a way um, so that when you go through your purification, uh, you don't have to feel so bad. <laughs> so I was doing a long three-month retreat just on loving-kindness. I was practicing it. And I was purifying heavily. I, I couldn't stand to be in the hall with anybody. So I had to sit when everybody was walking, and I had to leave the hall when everybody was sitting because I just got so irritated by everybody. And I was like, oh my God, it's backfiring. I knew it. I knew I was broken. I can't do loving kindness. And I talked to my teacher, like, no, 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 this is actually good. If you have the stamina for it, stay with it. This is purification. I was like, God, it's so unvalidating. Like, I'm in there. I'm just irritated by everybody. And they're like, it's, it's purifying. It's purifying. And then I started feeling some validation, some purification. But then all of a sudden, I got so irritated and so enraged and this one person who was trying to teach me loving kindness i was so irritated by them it's like ah i just can't stand them i was like this is so bad they're like my benefactor and i am so irritated by them and they took the stage to give a dharma talk i was like i can't i can't hear their voice not tonight i I have to get out of here i was like i can't even hear a dharma talk that's usually like the win of the day but like ah it was cold it was december i had to put on all my heavy clothing plus a, um, a blanket around me to endure how cold it was outside. But I'd rather be outside than be so irritated. And so I walk outside and it got worse. It was dark at night in December in Massachusetts. I was cold, I was alone, I was crunching on the, on the icy snow, back and forth trying to say my phrases, nothing was happening. Everybody else was inside and it was one of those Dharma talks where something happened. Everybody was laughing, like nonstop. I could hear the laughter. It was kind of like, ah, they're having the best Dharma talk of the entire retreat. And I'm out here alone doing loving kindness practice and I hate every one of them. Like months and months of this practice. Like this can't be right. This can't be right. And then I got so angry at them. I was like, I did everything you said and I am so of hate. I am so, I, I can't stand any of you when you're in there laughing and I'm alone. Like, how did this happen? I feel betrayed by you all. So I got a little, you did it wrong. No, I did it wrong. And a storm going off in my mind. I was like, oh my God, this is, this is really bad. I don't know what's happening here. I'm so angry. And, and then this plane must have been leaving Logan flying to San Francisco at midnight or like a late night plane heading off. It was going across, and this thought, my most violent thought came up. I was like, I hope that's a bomber. Yeah, and I hope that I drop bombs right when everybody's laughing, and then they'll see this really young, kind of like spoiled tantrum mind, like, Wah. and then, and I was believing it. I was kind of really swept up in it, a little, a little alarm, but swept up in it. And then my mind took it one step too far, and I caught on, like, okay, this is not, this is not worth believing in. I saw, yeah, in the morning, I'll be the only one alive. I'm going to search the rubble. And if I find two bricks that are still connected, I'm going to break them apart. <laughs> I was like, and my mind said, yes, let no two bricks be joined. <laughs> and it liked it. It was like Shakespearean. I saw myself standing on the rubble. Like I had won, and they had all lost, and no two bricks were connected. Because I was like, it's like, wait a second, what's happening here? What's happening here? And finally, I clued into it, like, oh, they talked about purification. I wonder if there's purification happening. <laughs> and then, it actually, that was the size of it, the epic size of it. And it finally rolled out of me. 
And in its space, I was like, oh my God, these poor teachers. <laughs> I wonder how often people storm in, they're like, you betrayed me. And they're in, they're in this purification process. And I was like, God, that's so loyal of them to put up with all this. And they have put up with me, and I put up with me. And, and that was a really intense experience, feeling all that. I've probably gotten that angry in everyday life. But to get that angry in the middle of loving kindness showed me the madness that can sweep over us. But out in daily life, I'd probably believe it. I'd probably like believe that I was right, that person was wrong, and rah, rah, rah. But I was like, oh, the violence of that thinking. And when it rolled out of me, there was this humbleness left over. And I wasn't the best loving kindness person ever. I wasn't gonna get an A in loving kindness. I definitely failed because of this huge anger bout. But then I was like, what a relief not to be the best person at this, because that's a whole setup. You know, I'd be attached to that. So I'm kind of grateful. I feel soft. I feel pliable. I feel relaxed. I was like, you know, actually, this practice does work. This practice does work, because this is actually what I want to be. I want to be quiet. I want to be humble. I want to be grateful. And I was able to walk back in. I was really happy to see everybody. I was like, oh, this practice does work. How strange that it would go that way, that there'd be this irritation, this frustration part of it, this anger that would roll out of the middle of it. And that actually purified my heart. I haven't had that type of really kind of pouty, tantrum-y frustration that I used to feel a lot when I was younger. It rolled out. It was purified that night. The practice will do that. You'll do that in small ways. So you might find yourself a little bit more sensitive and then you endure it and it passes, and a lot of little uh, purifications. But you might find yourself in the middle of this retreat, or other times in loving practice, loving kindness practice, where you're extra sensitive, and you begin to taste what it's like to have a mind that's not loving. It becomes intolerable. What's normal in everyday life? After a while, you're like, I, I don't want to have a heart that does this. And it becomes part of your motivation. I want to actually practice this so that it becomes more interwoven throughout my being. I no longer want my default setting to be the, the ordinary setting, which is irritated, neutral, loving. It's like, no, 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 I, I don't want my heart to call that normal and okay, to be that mean-spirited or that uh, self-hating. It becomes part of the motivation to keep practicing and keep purifying your heart and your mind. So again, that doesn't happen to everybody. It's not necessary that it happened to everybody. But if you find yourself on this retreat feeling sensitive and then tasting what it's like to have a heart that does what was probably ordinary, kind of a mean spiritedness or the way we're hard to ourselves, but we're so used to it. And then on a loving kindness retreat like this, you begin to taste the way you really talk to yourself and say, ah, oh, that's really harsh. How did I endure that after all these years, being that hard on myself? Not believing those thoughts, being more dedicated, more devoted, more courageous to be kind to yourself instead of harsh to yourself. And that begins, again, flushing out old patterns of harshness or impatience, irritation. And in its place, there's spaciousness, there's humility, but beautiful humility. There's kindness, there's softness. 
There's even room for courage, for beautiful courage, but it's not that selfish indignation. It's the, it's the heart that's warm and courageous to make um, beautiful vows and to act out those vows, make beautiful actions. I guess I've, I may have already said this, but I want to underscore it. <clears throat> the heart that I have these days, the heart and the mind that I have, are so much more free. And the size of the freedom I feel is bigger than the work I did to do it. And so that shows me I didn't build it from the outside in. I believed in it, and it grew. And you actually all, all have that. That's sort of a, it's um, deep in the beliefs and the understandings of the human heart in this tradition, that it has these beautiful qualities. And at worst, they're just dormant. But it, at their best, they can be allowed to grow. And these are the conditions that allow them to grow. The patient, steady practice all throughout the day while you're sitting, while you're walking, don't try to force it. You can't force a tomato to grow. You can't force a redwood to grow, but you make the conditions right for it to grow. So you can't force your heart to be great, but through patience, through steady, courageous commitment to stay with the practice, you're creating the conditions where these powerful qualities germinate, and then they grow. And after a while, you're really just standing in awe of them, nurturing them some, but watching these beautiful qualities of heart um, grow and grow much bigger than you could have imagined in your own heart. I never ever could have imagined, again, the heart that I had before these practices, that it would be as free and as reliable as it's become. And it wasn't done through any other way than the practices you're doing here. And if I can do it, you can do it. So. let's sit for a moment. And for a moment, just sit, relax. Be restful, be peaceful. Allow yourself to be simple. If it's possible, allow yourself to be easily contented just to sit here in a living body with a beating heart. And then with gentle devotion Begin wishing yourself well with gentle devotion. May I be safe. May I be happy. May I feel strong. May I live at ease in this world.
gently courageous to let go into this practice, inviting your full heart to be quiet and steady and strong. May I feel safe. May I feel happy. May I feel strong. May I live at ease in this world. So with patience and with courage, with faith, please continue your practice.